0: So, we are continuing in our study of 1 John this morning, and as you saw in this passage, John is pulling no punches. Last week, we saw him calling cats antichrists, and today, we see him calling people children of the devil. Now, that statement may rub some of our modern sensibilities the wrong way. We live in a more tolerant age and this may seem incredibly intolerant to call people children of the devil and if you're a christian you may just say hey that doesn't sound particularly loving like if you confess to me and or in your gospel community that you called your neighbor the spawn of satan this week we should probably talk about that (laughs) or maybe you read this and you go hey this is this is reflects a lot of the amped up rhetoric that is actually going on in our world today, and you really don't have any problem calling people children of the devil. You don't have a problem with John. In fact, you enjoyed it this week on social media calling people that. But to back up a little bit more, maybe it wasn't that the particularly grabbed your attention. Maybe it was this. No one who keeps on sinning knows God. Everyone who makes a practice of, the sin, of sinning is the devil. And so what you grabbed onto is the word sinning. Because if you're honest, you realize you sin, and you sin regularly. And so maybe the question popped in your mind, do I know God? Am I of the devil? Because the last time I checked, I don't dress in black and listen to Marilyn Manson. So there's probably some questions. What is John getting at here? John uses strong words that should stir some things in our heart, that should cause us to stop and reflect. And as we've seen him do regularly in this book, John is painting with bright, bold colors. He's drawing a line in the sand because he has had enough of the false teachers and false teaching that have created chaos and confusion related to what it means to follow Jesus. And so he's being direct and clear about what Christ has done and the effect it will have on our identities and our very lives. And so here's underneath these bold punches John is throwing are a series of questions. Is Christ a powerful savior or not? Did the life, death, and resurrection of Christ change anything for us or not? Does the identity of child of God actually mean something or not? See, these are the deeper questions kind of underneath the text here. And this is what I want us to reflect on This morning as we open God's word. And as I've been saying throughout this series, here is my hope and my goal prayerfully. One, for those of you who are in Christ, I want you to see there's an incredible amount of encouragement for you in this passage. John is holding out some powerful truths for you to grab hold of and rest in. But for those of you that maybe aren't sure what you believe, maybe those of you in here who would be you know, if you're honest, that you're, you're posing a little bit, you're, you're paying lip service to Christ, but he really doesn't have your heart. There's some words in here that I hope hits you pretty hard as well. And so what I want to do is I want to hold up Christ and the promises of the gospel. and I want to hold up the seriousness of the issue of sin. And I want it to provoke you. I want it to get you to ask some questions. I want you to reflect. And so by the Spirit of God and his word, we'll accomplish that this morning. So let's get inside some of this contrast that John is drawing between children of God and children of the devil. So John makes this contrast, and he does it in the writing style that we've sort of seen throughout his letter. This is, if you remember from the the first uh, sermon, I, I explained kind of how John writes. And what he will do is he likes to repeat himself a lot. And so he'll come back and say something that he said before, but every time he repeats himself, he sort of ups the ante. And so he'll, he'll say something, and then he'll come back and say it a little stronger, and say it a little bit stronger. And so in this passage for us this morning, we sort of see these two threads and contrasts and comparisons being woven. And so I want to pull them out and sort of set them side by side so we can see them clearly. So first, John talks about those who belong to the Lord. And so he starts in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Then picking up on the same idea in chapter 3, verses 6, 7, and 9, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now the contrast in chapter 3, verses 4, 6, and 8. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That's ratcheting it up. Let's start with just, hey, you're, you're, you're sinning. You're practicing lawlessness. And guess what? You're of the devil. That's what I mean. Amping up every time he repeats himself. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then he finishes with this sort of summary conclusion statement. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So in the first part of the contrast, John picks up on a theme he first introduced earlier in the letter. If you remember in chapter one, verses five through seven, John points out that God is light. And if we say we have fellowship with God, we say we belong to him, then we walk in the light. Our lives should reflect the light of God. And here he repeats that theme but he ups the ante by using family language. He isn't just using the language of obedience and imitation. He's actually using the language of lineage and DNA and family. He's essentially asking, who's your daddy? Whose spiritual DNA do you carry? To belong to God means your spiritual DNA, the very essence of your soul carries the qualities of the lord himself think of the physical parallel like the dna that you carry in your body reflects your parents Like your height your weight your eye color your hair color skin tone facial features susceptibility to certain diseases we can go on and on and on all of those things are reflective of the dna you got from your parents you carry the family resemblance and we see this all over. This is a visual, uh, an obvious visual thing that we can, we can see with our eyes and we recognize in people. Like, if your parents are of European descent, you will be of European descent. If your parents are of African descent, you're going to be of African descent in your DNA. If your parents are from Asia, your DNA will reflect an Asian heritage. You don't magically bypass the DNA of your parents. People from Africa that have African heritage don't have children of European descent. People of European descent don't have children with DNA that are of Asian descent. We cannot bypass our DNA. We reflect our parents, and the same is true spiritually. We will reflect the nature of our spiritual DNA. If we are born of God spiritually, then we will reflect his character. We will practice righteousness. We will not make a practice of sinning. Why? As John tells us, because God's seed, that is his spirit and his word, abide in us. And that spirit and that word are producing fruit in us. There's life in his word and in his spirit. And that life is active in us and it is transforming us. God's power is real. This is a promise that John is holding out for those of you who are in Christ. God's power is real and it is active in you. The power of God, the seed of God, the life that he has, it brings our dead, rebellious souls and it transforms us at the very core. It empowers us to walk in righteousness and reflect the spiritual DNA of our father. Look, John is making bold statements about practicing righteousness, not because he thinks we're awesome or that our discipline is so strong or we're going to hold it together. No, his confidence is in the word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord, the seed that is at work in us, the DNA, the life that is at work in us. And so he makes this bold statement. He can go so far as to say, if you are not walking in righteousness, if you're not practicing righteousness, then God's word, spirit are not in you. If you're not reflecting the family DNA, you don't belong to this particular father. And so this makes sense of John's point about sinning and being of the devil. So in verse 3, 4, chapter 3, verse 4, he, John writes, Everyone who pra- makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And he has a particular understanding of sin here that's important. See, the word that he uses in the Greek translated law- lawlessness anomia means to behave with complete disregard for laws or regulations so he's talking about a rebellious disposition he's talking about a heart whose disposition whose bent is towards lawlessness towards breaking the law particularly the law of god he's talking about a heart that cares nothing for righteousness and godliness and holiness A heart that doesn't care about being obedient to the Lord and following the Lord. A heart that doesn't care about being in fellowship with the Lord. And John makes a bold statement because he can say this. Hey, if that's your heart, God's word isn't in you. God's spirit is not in you. If your heart reflects animosity and rebellion against the Lord, how can you say the spirit of the Lord lives in you? The word practice in both these instances is important, because he's pointing at lifestyle and habit and disposition. Because look, Christians, we will sin. We're, we're going to sin. John makes that point a little bit earlier, right? Because if we stop saying we have sin, we run into a problem. So John isn't saying all of a sudden, hey, start, start denying that you have sin, and start saying, hey, I'm perfect. But there is a difference between someone who sins And goes to Christ and cries out for mercy and forgiveness and repents and wants to walk in godliness and righteousness and lets the power of the Holy Spirit transform them in someone who doesn't care. Someone who will just walk in sin and not give it a second thought. So, what do you do with your sin? What's the disposition of your heart related to sin? That's John's point here. And this is why it makes complete sense that John would say those who have hearts in rebellion against God. Are of the devil. Because, look, similar to last week when we talked about the last days and antichrist, there's a lot of sensational talk about Satan. Like, like our culture can get a little carried away, the church can get a little carried away. Like we can have this sort of cartoonish, sensationalized understanding of the devil. We have the horns and the pitchfork and the flames and people that worship the devil, dressed in all black and listen to heavy metal music, and play their records backwards and listen for se- secret Satan messages. You guys know about that? Okay, some of you do. If you don't, good. And, and then we'll, we'll have this sort of conception of like demon possession that we get from like the exorcist or the movie Paranormal Activity. So so we start filling our our understanding based on kind of culture and sensationalized views of things and miss what John is saying here. And and then even when he says this, we start to sort of push back on it because we're like, hey, I haven't had a demon. My head hasn't spun around. I haven't spit out green stuff and crawled backwards down the stairs doing crab walk. Like, some of you know what I'm talking about. So we fool ourselves into thinking that that this isn't real. Look, I absolutely believe that there is a thing as demon possession. Scripture is clear about that. I I absolutely believe that there are are spiritual things at work in like the occult and and other types of magic and, and spiritual practices that you don't want to mess with because it will open you up to being oppressed or even possessed by demons. Now, side note, I don't believe Christians can be possessed by demons. That's a different sermon. So I'm not not denying that there are supernatural aspects here. But what John is driving at is that there's a particular thing about who Satan is that's reflective in a rebellious heart. You see, most of Satan's power and influence has nothing to do with the sensational. It has everything to do with the normal, everyday, average lives that you and I live and whether or not we're walking in righteousness or we're walking in rebellion. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see the devil's first appearance in the pages of Scripture. He doesn't go possessing someone and tr- creating this like, incredible, crazy scene. What does he do? He tempts Eve. He, he gets into a dialogue with Eve, and he causes her to doubt the goodness of God, he causes her to doubt that, that God actually cares. He gets her to think that God's holding out on her. And so he brings her to this place where she decides, hey, I'm going to find meaning and purpose apart from God. I'm going to find satisfaction and joy apart from God. I'm going to define good and evil apart from God. Abject rebellion. See, Satan's agenda is to get you and I to live in a place where we don't trust the Lord and depend upon him. We don't seek joy and life and satisfaction in him. And we get to define our own sense of good and evil, right and wrong. That's what Satan's after. That's what Satan's program has been. And when you and I have hearts that adopt that, we are following in the footsteps of Satan himself. This is what John is pressing on. And if we sort of take a step back and consider the context, these false teachers were spreading lies about God. They're just spreading lies about what God's word says. They're, they're trying to get Christians to find satisfaction and meaning and identity apart from the true one true God, tempting them to chase after desires and pleasures of this world and define their own sense of good and evil. So these false teachers were doing the exact same thing that Satan did. That's why he's calling them children of the devil. Man, you walk in the same pattern as Satan himself when this is your heart. But here's the stark reality. Like, these false teachers are not in a special class of humanity. Like, because of Adam's sin, all of us are born with a natural bent rebellion against God our natural disposition is to believe lies about God to question God's word to look for satisfaction and life and joy apart from the Lord to define good and evil on our own like we seek identity and existence apart from God and look at the mess we have made like look at the selfishness and the pain and the self-indulgence and the pride we inflict on one another Like John is fired up because he looks at sin and he can see the damage it does, the damage it does to individual souls and the damage that we do to one another. It's almost as if John sort of has this glimpse of human history and says, look at this mess. Look at this damage. Look look at this destruction. Look at this selfishness. Look at this pride. This isn't of the Lord. This isn't of God. Who could this be of? Satan, the devil, the one who poses the Lord, the one who hates God, the one who hates you, hates humanity, hates everything God has done. And our rebellion, our sin, is, is so destructive, it, it is so persistent, that for us to think that we can carry on in it, and still claim that we follow God, and know God, and are born of God, is absolute lunacy. It makes no sense. It doesn't follow. It doesn't reflect what is true, and right, and good. And the problem is, is that we're so quick to scoff at the idea of sin and rebellion, we're so quick to scoff at the idea of, of Satan. And what we end up doing is we end up perpetuating the same lies. Like, we'll tell those lies to ourselves. I don't need the Lord. I can define things myself. I can, I can have identity apart from God. And then we'll go tell other people the same thing. And so we perpetuate the lies and the rebellion that Satan started. Apart from Christ, we truly are children of the devil because we follow his ways. We follow after his rebellion. We listen to him and the sobering reality that John is presenting for those of you who would pay lip service to Christ and yet your heart is far from him is you're not fooling God. You may fool us, you may fool yourself, but you're not fooling the Lord and someday he's gonna out you. Someday the truth will come to, to reality and you'll be left standing exposed. That's a scary place to be. And the punch of this passage, the the weight of this passage, the seriousness of this passage is to cause you to wake up, to stop and reflect and ask yourself, is my heart carried the DNA of God or am I perpetuating the rebellion of Satan? But the good news of the gospel that is so present in this passage is that Satan and sin don't rule the day. John is serious about sin. He's painting with bold, bright colors. But he's doing that to show the beauty and the power of the gospel all the more. Look, our God is not a weak and ineffectual God. His power isn't unable to change things. As John reminds us, you know that he, who is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil Okay, as significant and powerful and destructive as sin is, the greater reality is that Christ has come to deal with sin and deal with Satan, and he won. Like, the truth of the gospel is that sin and Satan have been defeated in Jesus Christ. How did he deal with it? Well, how, how did he enter into our world and deal with sin and with Satan? Well, he stepped onto the stage of human history as a man. God the Son stepped into our world, put on our humanity, and became a man. And he fully experienced despair and rejection and loneliness and poverty and bereavement and torture and imprisonment. He bore in his body shame and scorn. He was mocked and spit on and stripped naked and humiliated. He bore the pain of being flogged and whipped and beaten. He bore the intense agony and blood loss and suffocation of being nailed to a cross. Why? To love you. To save you to rescue you from the snare of sin and Satan. You see, we deserve judgment because of our rebellion, but Christ stepped in our place and took all of that so we could be set free so that sin and Satan do not rule us and have dominion over us so we would not live for the lies and perpetuate the lies of Satan. Christ endured separation from his father You and I deserve to be separated. You and I deserve to be cast into judgment away from God. But Jesus Christ in love stood in our place and in that brutally honest cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Took the abandonment, took God the Father, the one that he had been eternally in relationship with, turned his back on Christ for you. Christ paid it all. So that you and I can be set free. So that sin and Satan don't have the final word in this world. And the beautiful reality is that in Christ's resurrection, he rose victorious over sin and death and hell. And if you are in Christ, you now have the very life of Christ in you. You have his very power flowing through you. You have the DNA of God. And that means victory for you. Do you see why John is so fired up that people could, could even think that to be in Christ and to just go on with this casual sin and rebellion in your heart would be ludicrous because it spits in the face of what Jesus did. It minimizes the power of the gospel. It looks at what Jesus did and go, ah, not a big deal. I mean, put, put this sort of like in a historical perspective like, okay, let's think of so in our country, the, the American Revolution. So the Revolutionary War, we broke away from Britain. Let's say after the war, after the victory was won, people walking around going, "Ah, we're still British citizens." Like completely would have flown in the face of everything that just happened. It would have denied this radical shift in history, this radical reality change. Or, or imagine after Abraham Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation, people still going around hey, I'm going to grab you as a slave. Completely denying the radical shift in history, the radical change in reality. It's the same thing here. Christ and his death and his resurrection are too powerful for us to go on with the silly business saying we can just continue in sin. That is not why Christ came. That is not who you are in Christ. This is why John breaks mid-thought in verse 3-1 to declare this, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John recognizes we don't deserve any of this. Like John looks at our rebellion. He looks at our pride. He looks at our selfishness. He looks at the way that we have followed after Satan and he sees the judgment he does. We deserve. And yet God still loves us. God still sent Christ to save us. God still redeems us and calls us children of God. And we are. John is blown away at the reality that God would call sinners like you and me sons and daughters. But this is what Christ did. This is the power of the gospel at work. This is what Jesus does. This is what he came to do. And if you are in Christ, this is who you are. Now, let me ask for you who are in Christ do do you believe you are a beloved son? Do you believe you are a beloved daughter? Maybe you see your sin and your mess and your brokenness, and you still think you are a child of the devil more than a child of God. Let John's words give you hope. See the love that the Father has for you, the love that He has for you through Jesus Christ. He looks at you as a son, as a daughter, and He smiles. Even in your mess, even in your sin, even in your brokenness, because of Jesus, he loves you. I've, I've used this illustration before, but I think it bears repeating. Like in the gospel, we can, we can sort of see a picture of two rooms. One is a courtroom where, where God the judge stands, and we stand before him as a guilty sinner, deserving punishment. But Christ steps in, takes our punishment, so we can be declared not guilty. But then there's something more because, because it's awesome to be considered not guilty. Hey, my debt is paid. I'm free. I'm forgiven. But it doesn't stop there. God, the judge, steps off his, his podium. He takes the robe off. He comes to you. He embraces you with a huge hug, and he brings you into the family room. He brings you into the family room to experience him as a father, as one who loves you and wants to care for you and wants to support you and nurture you and strengthen you. How many of you are still in the courtroom? How many of you live in the courtroom still wondering whether the verdict has been declared, still questioning the verdict? Like God is saying, come on, follow me into the family room. Know me as a father. Know me as one who loves you, who spared no expense to pay for your, your forgiveness and your salvation so you can be in fellowship with me. Oh, if you're living in the courtroom, God wants you to see that he is a father and he loves you and he wants you to come into the family room. Here is one of the beautiful things about adoption. And I love that there are families in here that have embraced adoption. I have six adopted siblings, three brothers, three sisters. If you look at their birth certificate, you know whose name is on their birth certificate? My mom. My mom's name is on their birth certificate. That is the power of adoption. It rewrites your history. It rewrites as if my brothers and sisters who were adopted had the very DNA of my mom. That's what happens when God brings you into the family. He rewrites your spiritual DNA. He puts his name on your birth certificate. You belong to him, body and soul, and he loves you. Do you rest in that? Do you live in the good of that? Does that give you hope? Does that give you a sense that you have power to overcome sin? A believer, that is meant to give you great hope. That is meant to give you great joy is meant to give you great confidence that Christ came to take away sin and He has destroyed the works of the devil that is the power that is work in you and yes this life will be messy the process of change is slow you're going to face sin here's why because God isn't after superficial change like he's digging deep and that change takes time he's going after the deepest recesses of your soul to set you free and so expect that throughout your entire life but guess what His seed is at work in you. His word, his spirit, his love, his grace are work in you. That is the power you have. That is the DNA you carry. And on top of that, here's the great hope that you have. As John writes, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See, when Christ returns and we see him in his full glory, we will fully become what we already are. Here's John's point. See, we are children of God right now. That reality is true of us right now. It's not some future glorified version of us that, that that's true. It's who we are right now and all our mess. Right. But what we experience, what we see is still Messy. Still hard, still difficult. There is sin and there is pain and there is struggle. And then there is Satan coming after us to discourage us and to try to take us out of the game. There is the world that sees us as backward and um, bigoted and, and kind of stuck in our ways and kind of holding on to an ancient book full of fairy tales. They don't see us. We have a hard time seeing us as we truly are. But when Christ comes... When Christ comes in glory, when Christ returns and we see him in the fullness of his glory with with the sight of our eyes and we see his beauty, we see his power, we see his grace, guess what happens to us? We transform. We become fully, we see fully, we experience fully what we truly are. The grace, the love, the power, the transformation, all of that will be put on full display and we will marvel, wow, this is who I have been all along? This is what I've been heading towards all along? That reality will come and it will shock us and shake us and we will rejoice. It is a beautiful, beautiful hope that John holds out here and it's meant to to give us hope to say, hey, keep pressing, keep repenting, keep walking in righteousness. Keep keep walking in community. Keep loving. Keep serving. Because the power that is at work in you, the transformation that God is at work in you, he will complete it and you're going to get to see it one day and it's going to blow you away. And this is what John says for those of us that hold on to this. That we put our hope in this and we purify ourselves as he is pure. We walk in righteousness because God is righteous and he's working righteousness in us. You see... We don't treat great hope and anticipation flippantly. We we don't treat it lackadaisical and lazily. Look, think of like graduations or weddings or Christmas Day. Like our anticipation of all that stuff, what do we do? We prepare. We, We get excited. We plan. We do little things to sort of anticipate that day coming because we want that day to be glorious. We're excited about that day. So we go shopping, we decorate our houses, we plan for the wedding, we get, we, we get everything set up, and, and all of that prep, all of that planning, walking sort of anticipation of that day, what do we get to do? We taste just a little bit of that day before it comes. We get a little glimpse, a little bit of its power, a little bit of its joy, a little bit of the, the transformation that, that that day is going to represent. And as we do that, as we give ourselves to that, as we anticipate, as we are intentional, what happens when that day arrives? it's more glorious. It's more powerful. We, we experience its fullness and all that preparation, all that work, all that commitment, all that intentionality it was worth it. And so if this is our great hope, we heighten that hope. We experience pieces of that hope by purifying ourselves, by walking in righteousness, by being obedient to the Lord. And so we don't sit back lazy, go, oh, someday I'm going to be glorious, so what difference does it make? No, We want that now. We want to experience that now. So we walk in righteousness. We walk in intentionality. And we walk in a way that reflects the glorious hope that we have. And so church, God is not weak and ineffectual to save. The power that is in you is not weak and ineffectual to change you. The seed that God has put in your heart is working, is changing you is transforming you. And if that is true, then let us walk away from sin. Let us walk away from the things that destroy our souls and wreck other people. Let's walk away from the darkness and the selfishness and the pride and self-indulgence of this world. And let's walk in love love for one another, and love for those who are far from Christ that they may experience the love of Christ. Let's walk in righteousness and purity and holiness so that we are conformed to the image of Christ and other people are blessed by us. Let us walk in the mess and sin of others, shining the light of the gospel, knowing that his power is able to save and transform. And let's do this in hope for the glory that's going to be revealed in Christ and in us when he returns. That's who our God is. That's the power that is working in us. Amen.